Welcome to church. It is good to be together. I want to open up in prayer. God, as we step into your word, as we take this time to orient ourselves towards the cross, um, to look at what you have done for us, to understand the ways in which it changes our lives, it changes the world around us, it changes our relationships, it affects everything. Help us to come to you with arms open, ready to receive what you have for us. Help us to allow those things to change the way we live our lives, to change the way we look at things. Help it to sink deep, to sit well, to anchor us into your kingdom. Thank you for what you have done. Amen. So last week, in the uh, intro to this series, I said that we are going to be opening up our Easter presents early this year. This traditionally would be a time uh, when we, as we approach Easter, we'd sort of be working towards it in an intentional way. Uh, we would be looking at Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, and, and this week, uh, t- traditionally, uh, as you may have noticed from the children's feature, we would be looking at um, Palm Sunday, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Aaron, by the way, uh, messaged, I was looking at the live stream stuff, and Aaron messaged me while that was going on. She said, the boys are just about beside themselves. They cannot imagine how they let a monkey into church. <laughs> they could not, could not believe it. We've had a monkey in church for years. Oh, fair enough. They just haven't been looking closely enough. But that would be where, that is where we are at in the traditional sort of journey leading up to Easter. But this year, we are taking uh, the time before Easter, last week, this week, as well as Easter Sunday and the week after to, essentu- or to, to focus ourselves on the resurrection and the hope that we have, the world-changing, life-changing, relationship-changing, paradigm-changing, kingdom-shaking hope that we have been given in Jesus. And we looked last week at the hope that it gives us as individuals, the hope that it gives you and me personally now in this moment. Resurrection hope isn't just a far-off future hope. It is that, but it isn't just that. It also changes our lives now in this moment. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, that event that we celebrate was sufficient. It was all-encompassing. It covers all. And that's a theme that we're going to be returning to again and again as we look at the cross. Paul, over and over again in his teaching to the early church, comes back to the cross as the thing that matters most, as the thing that he wants to know and rely on and contemplate and preach above all else. And today we want to look at how Jesus' death and resurrection, how the cross gives us hope for justice. Justice, a sense of right and wrong, of fairness, of of things being right in the world, is one of the most core, primal pieces of our nature. It's what defines us as humans. If you look at the media that we consume, the stories that we gravitate towards, superhero movies and fantasy adventures, these stories are all built around the idea of justice. The, The group of superheroes that gather together in the DC universe is called the Justice League. This is what these stories are about. People who naturally or supernaturally have the power to right wrongs, 
to put the bad guys away, to make things right in the world. Look at the popularity of of crime dramas, of murder podcasts and mysteries and detective stories. Look at the percentage of primetime TV that is focused around police and detectives catching criminals. All of these things in some way give us sort of a cheap justice fix. It helps us feel that feeling that we all desperately want to feel, the satisfaction that comes from wrong being made right, from good winning in the end. Or maybe how about this? Imagine how easy it would be if I gave you a minute to make a list through your life of the people who have wronged you, who have treated you unfairly. I can barely remember my second grade teacher's name, but I can absolutely remember with crystal clear clarity the time my second grade friend blamed me for a thrown paper airplane during class and my name got written on the board. That, by the way, is the worst possible showing of shame and humiliation in second grade. Thank you, Joan. It scarred me. I I still have feelings about the anger that I had in me when my name was unfairly written on that board as a seven-year-old. This is baked into our DNA. And more than just our DNA, it's actually baked into the rest of creation, too. We do seem to be on a bit of a monkey kick this morning, and I want to show you a quick video on an experiment that was run several years ago. Uh, this guy's a little bit hard to understand, but I think if you uh, pay close attention, this kind of speaks for itself as the experiment gets going, what, what the sense of justice in the created world looks like. So the final experiment that I want to mention to you is our fairness study. Uh, and so this, this, this became a very famous study, and there's now many more, because after we did this about 10 years ago, uh, it became uh, very well known. And we did that originally with capuchin monkeys, and uh, I'm going to show you the first experiment that we did. It has now been done with dogs, and with birds, and with chimpanzees, Uh, but with Sarah Brosnan we started out with capuchin monkeys. So what we did is we put two capuchin monkeys side by side. Again, these animals, they live in a group, they know each other, we take them out of the group, put them in a test chamber, and there's a very simple task that they need to do, and if you give both of them cucumber, for the task, the two monkeys side by side, they're perfectly willing to do this 25 times in a row. So cucumber, even though it's really only water in my opinion, but cucumber <laughs> is perfectly fine for them. Now if you give the partner grapes, the, the food preferences of my capuchin monkeys correspond exactly with the prices in the supermarket. And so if you give them grapes, it's a far better food, uh, then you create inequity between them. So that's the experiment we did. Recently we videotaped it with new monkeys who had never done the task, uh, thinking that maybe they would have a stronger reaction and that turned out to be right. The one on the left, is the monkey who gets cucumber. The one on the right is the one who gets grapes. The one who gets cucumber, note that the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine. The first piece she eats. Uh, Then she sees the other one getting grape and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us, that's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it, the other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now, gets again cucumber. She tests her rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. (laughs) So this is basically the Wall Street protest that you see there. (laughs) 
<laughs> Did someone say he's like looking in a mirror? Is that what I heard? Yeah. So we have this instinctual desire for justice. It's, it's intuitive. We don't have to be taught it. We don't have to cultivate it. We get it. We get it in our heads, and more than that, we get it in our guts, that there is right and there is wrong and there is fair and there is unfair. Ironically, across all uh, the, the social media arguments and protests and counter-protests and all the rest, no matter what side of the coin you are on on these things, what unites us is a desire for justice, is a desire for right to be done, and what divides us is a disagreement about what that justice looks like in a given situation. I don't have to give you more examples on this. It's a big issue. We all feel it in one way or another. It feels intensely relevant to the time that we live in. So what we want to do today is ask the question, what does the cross, what does Jesus' death and resurrection have to say about justice? And the answer is a whole lot. And so we're going to dig into John, the Gospel of John, a little bit to try and piece together uh, both God's heart for justice our calling when it comes to justice, and then also, of course, look at what the cross has to do with this. So my first point that I want to explore together with you is this. First, justice is at the core of what Jesus came to do. What is the most famous verse in the Bible, the most well-known verse? Someone have a guess? I think you know. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's one of those verses that I learned at a point in my life where I slipped back into King James. It's, it's one of these verses that we all sort of know and, and understand, and we see everywhere around us. It shows up at baseball games and football games and the stands. It shows up everywhere. It's the most well-known verse, and it's a beautiful verse, a powerful statement of God's love and mercy and grace towards us, of the hope that we have in Christ. But I wonder how many know what comes after that verse as it goes forward in John, what this verse is building to. We're going to keep reading uh, in John chapter 3. We're going to jump a little bit ahead to John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. It's going to be up on the screen here. This is what it says. Light, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And that's a theme through the Gospel of John. Jesus is spoken about over and over as light and as life. And these two words run through the whole Gospel. It would be a great sort of study of John to read through, just to take time to read through John and just pay attention to when you see light and when you see life, because those words are all over. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. John's gospel is a gospel of love, but it is just as much a gospel focused on justice. In fact, looking at how these verses connect, how John 3.16 flows into this statement, John's argument here seems to be that justice, that light exposing the darkness, that Jesus bringing and exposing truth, showing things for how they really are, that that is an extension of, an outpouring of God's love. John's gospel is concerned with the world being put right, 
with things being made right. There is an early heresy in the church called Gnosticism. Dallas Knelson actually a few weeks ago spent some time talking about the Gnostic heresy of, of separating out spirit and body. The idea that the spiritual is elevated and the body is lower. It's less valuable or it's worthless. And so all that matters is your spiritual self. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. So Dallas talked about that in terms of, of sexual ethics, of separating out, separating out our bodies and our personhood. Uh, but this Gnostic idea can also deeply impact our view of creation in general. And I've certainly heard uh, speakers in my life talk this way. There is this general idea out there that the world around us is temporary and it's lesser. Our society's view is that the world is essentially the Titanic. It's sinking. And what Christians are trying to do is get as many people off of this thing as possible onto uh, life rafts and lifeboats in order to save them and forget the Titanic. It's done. To escape this world, to bid it good riddance as we sort of ride off to heaven. But that is not how Jesus thought about creation. And it misses the point of what Jesus came to do. Like we spoke about last week, Jesus didn't simply come to save our futures. He is restoring us. He is building a new kingdom and a new creation now and here. In this moment and in this place and in this reality. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think Dallas might have used this quote too, but it's good enough to repeat. C.S. Lewis said, God likes matter. He created it. And John begins his gospel by driving this point home in the most uh, beautiful way, with echoes of Genesis 1. The first words of the entire Bible, in the beginning, those same three words are used at the beginning of John's uh, book. He intentionally is drawing our minds back to a creator God that has a plan and a purpose for his creation. He's using those words to build on a story and, and a group of verses that would have been completely familiar to the people of his time. It's a little bit like if I start a speech saying four score and seven years ago, that tells you something about what I'm going to be talking about, about what I think about who I am or my subject material. I'm thinking that this is on the level of Abraham Lincoln, whatever I'm about to say next. And this is building off of your associations with that phrase. And so by beginning with those words, John is saying, I am about to build on and to open your minds up to a deeper understanding of the beginning of all things of the story of God's interaction with his creation. And in doing this, he introduces us to Jesus, to the word, the light, and life itself, who throughout the whole of Scripture loves the entire world. And out of that love brings a gospel of justice and blessing and equality. Jesus, John is saying, was there at the beginning. He is a very good God who created a very good world that is worth saving. And we'll get more uh, back into the echoes of Genesis that show up through John a little bit later in the sermon, but kind of keep that in your heads. My second point is this. The call for justice that we see around us is a heart cry that is fulfilled in the good news of Jesus. This is a point where I had a lot of stuff that I could have said and not a lot of time to get into it. So this is what I'm going to do. I am going to take the next two minutes or so 
and just blitz through a crazy amount of information, an overwhelming amount of information. This is going to be interesting for some of you. For some of you, this is not going to hit the mark, and that's okay. You have permission to not pay attention. For the next two minutes, if you want to listen and kind of try and absorb this, great. If not, I'll let you know when to tune back in. But I want to kind of walk through some of the cultural shifts that have happened in the last little bit. You ready? All right. 20 years ago, the way that we thought about things in a society, the way that we sort of characterized our ideas of justice and morality was in a what's called a postmodern context. So I'm not going to get into the weeds on postmodernism, but what's important for us is that the postmodern idea was essentially, you do you, I'll do me, reality is subjective, the rules are made up, good is not really good, evil is not really evil, we all have our own ideas you don't step on my toes, I won't step on your toes, we'll all just go on living, right? That was the idea that kind of anchored society for many years. Is that a familiar idea to many of you in terms of culture? That's what it would have been for me through my high school and college years. That would have been at the forefront of our thinking. It's just let's uh, um, kind of, everyone believes what they want to believe. There's no such thing as absolute truth. There has been a huge shift in the last five or so years. It started before that, but it really has come to the forefront in the last little bit. And it's new enough that this shift doesn't even really have a name yet. I, I did a little bit of digging. People right now are calling it post-postmodernism, which is not a very catchy name. But, but it is an acknowledgement that we have stepped into a new chapter. And what we have seen in the last several years with the various social justice movements, with Black Lives Matter, with cancel culture, with the hashtag MeToo movement, with renewed discussion about women's reproductive rights and gender and sexuality and trans rights and all of these things, we've entered into a new era that is in some ways defined by uh, an academic sort of theory called critical theory. And, and there's also a subset of this called critical race theory, CRT, that has been in the headlines recently because there's churches in the States that are, that are uh, fighting hard about whether critical race theory is a legitimate thing or not. All this, it's these big ideas floating around that we're trying to come to grips with. But this is critical theory, basically. Critical theory says there is objective right and wrong. There is a right way to treat people and a wrong way to treat people. And especially critical theory speaks to the fact that um, systems can carry with them flaws and sin. The critical theory might talk about inequality or prejudice or abuse. We would call that in the church sin. And they would say those things exist not just on a personal level, but also within systems that cultures and governments and institutions can be set up in such a way that breeds inequality and that breeds oppression and unhealthy power dynamics in ways that are often almost invisible to the people who are holding the power. It's also important to note that the church, I'm talking about the big picture church, of which we are a part, has, through distant and recent history, often failed to hold up justice in the right ways. We have elevated some sins above others in unhealthy ways. We have allowed unhealthy power dynamics and abuse to survive and sometimes even thrive within the church. We have ignored sexual sin. We have ignored greed and racism and, and the fear of the other or the outsider. There are many Christian writers who have noted that critical theory is an effort by the secular world to plug a gap that the Western church has missed in the gospel message. And the church needs to take that as a wake-up call. Okay, so for those of you who tuned out for the last three minutes, this is the point where you can jump back in with me. We're through sort of the craziness. The summary is this. 
even though the conclusions are sometimes off base, the secular world has decided once again that right and wrong do exist and that it's important to do what is right. And there is something beautiful and God-given and God-honoring at the root of that, even though we can disagree about the directions that it is taken. The fundamental problem with many of these movements is this. Justice cannot be disconnected from Jesus. Justice can't be disconnected from Jesus. When God has been removed from the conversation, when Jesus is not seen as the way, the truth, and the life, when you let go of that anchor, you have all this heart energy for justice, but your target, your ability to direct that energy and that power in right direction uh, becomes completely distorted. Instead of the accuracy of a sniper rifle focused on the enemy, and I know that that is not a very good Anabaptist analogy, but I thought Darren would be proud of me for using gun examples again. Thanks for the thumbs up. It becomes a flamethrower manned by a toddler. It becomes dangerous, not just for those it is pointed at, but liable to hurt the people wielding it as well. Without Jesus, social justice can be distorted and twisted into shapes that hurt and divide instead of heal. I want to read from John again, just a couple of chapters over. This is John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and 26 and 27. It'll be up again there. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. For... As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. In terms of our understanding of the Trinity, our understanding of the roles of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, John spells it out pretty clearly here. Jesus is the judge. The Son has been entrusted with all judgment, all authority to judge. You could put this another way. Justice flows from Jesus. He is the source of true justice. Jesus is our clearest picture of God. He is God walking and talking and living and breathing here on earth. And so his life and his teachings, and most clearly his death and his resurrection, show us the justice of God, demonstrated and accomplished. N.T. Wright says this about John's view of justice. He says, John's gospel then depicts a God who cares deeply about justice. The point is fundamental. Although we humans have ourselves a strong echo of this longing for justice, in God himself that longing is completed and perfected. Part of the hope the Christian faith offers is the knowledge that God will not allow injustice to be the last word. That is a central element in the good news of the gospel. It's interesting, uh, walking through John's gospel, how often Jesus, rather than being a judge, is instead judged by other people. Uh, in chapter 5, in the incident that actually leads up to this teaching on judgment, he's being attacked by the Jewish leaders for healing a man on the Sabbath. They accuse him of deceiving people. Uh, later, they, they can't figure out what to call him anymore. They start calling him demon-possessed because they can't figure this guy out. In chapter 8, 
They set up a trap in order to attempt to force him into breaking the law publicly. The story of the adulterous woman, this famous story where Jesus is asked to stone this woman, was specifically engineered by the Pharisees looking to corner Jesus into doing something unforgivable. Will he uphold the law of Moses and stone this woman? But over and over again, Jesus shows that his understanding of and his connection to judgment is deeper and more complete than those who are trying to accuse him. After he diffuses the incident with the woman, he reminds the crowds, I am the light of the world. There's that light again. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the long and the short of it. When you seek justice without Jesus, you end up in one of two places. There are probably more than two places, but here are two main ones. You can end up like the Pharisees, focused on rules, on trapping people, on technicalities, on lines and boundaries and divisions between people. Or here on Palm Sunday, I can't help but think of the crowds worshiping and adoring Jesus when they saw him as coming to judge the Roman Empire, coming to claim victory, but when Jesus didn't do what they wanted, when their desire for judgment was rooted in their own self-interest instead of the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing, they turn on him. They worship The worshiping crowds on Palm Sunday turn into the mobs on Good Friday shouting, crucify him. And I imagine that there is some overlap in that group. Justice, divorced from its source, its creator, its ultimate authority, will either devolve into hollow rule following and legislation and religion or into self-serving chaos. It is only when we connect ourselves to the true vine that the fruit of our justice is going to be good. So, we spend a lot of time covering justice, not a lot of time yet on resurrection hope. And here's where I want to land for this Sunday. Here's where I hope we can rest the, the place, the miracle that I hope we can steep our hearts and our minds in as we go through the week from here. God's victory on the cross brings perfect justice to our lives, our communities, our world, and all creation. I'm going to go back to N.T. Wright here for a moment uh, in his discussion of John's view of justice. This is what he says. He's speaking about the crucifixion, the passion story leading up to the cross. The whole point of the story seen from this angle, is that in the crucifixion of Jesus, we see the world we know. The world where we all want justice, but where it doesn't happen. The world where injustice wins, and where the bullies and power brokers do what they want and get away with it. The world we live in. Think with me for a moment about the all-encompassing injustices demonstrated on Jesus' walk to the cross. He is tried in a kangaroo court. He is charged for crimes he doesn't commit. He's betrayed by his own disciple. He is betrayed by the religious system. He is betrayed by the political system. He is betrayed by the mob. He is betrayed by his community. He's betrayed by Peter. He is chosen to die instead of Barabbas. He is made to suffer pain and humiliation and shame. He is mocked and ridiculed by the guards. He is mocked by the crowds and even mocked by one of the men who is dying beside him. He is given injustice in every single possible area of this, from every single angle, from every level of the world. When Philip meets the eunuch in Acts chapter 8, 
this eunuch is reading from Isaiah of a man who was like a sheep led to slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. The gospel story is built to resonate with our heart cry for justice. Everything here creates rage and tension and frustration inside of us. Is this how life is always going to be? Will right and good ever prevail? How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? And for two days, hopelessness. The same old patterns have repeated again. Darkness is our only companion. Brokenness and destruction and injustice. But on that third day, it all changes. Every crime novel you've ever read, every superhero movie you've ever watched, every narrative that ties things up with a bow that sees wrongs made right is in some way an echo of that morning. Every question that we have about grief and loss and suffering and brokenness and injustice is answered in that moment. God has no intention of letting injustice have the final word. God's justice, which to be clear is God's love, God's light and life, has the final word. We have victory over injustice in all its forms because of a God who conquered it once and for all. On a cosmic level, justice has won, injustice has been overthrown, and that ripples down through everything, through our world and our systems and our governments and our communities and our churches and our families and our own hearts. Justice is victorious. Things will be made right. More than that, we have a promise that somehow things are already being made right. We have assurance of faith that all is working together for good and for God's plan. This is the turning point of the story. Here's a question for you as we bring this home. Why do we have church on Sundays? The, the, the Jewish people, of course, their holy day was the Sabbath. It was Saturday. And, and, and Christians didn't have to change it. They could have stuck with tradition. They could have stayed with Saturday. So why did we move to Sunday? Who wants to hazard a guess on that? It's a pretty simple answer. What, what significant event in the Christian history happened on a Sunday? Jesus Christ rose on a Sunday. And that is why we gather as Christians on a Sunday. Now, this is a trickier question. I won't uh, leave too much silence for this one. But why did Jesus rise on a Sunday? In God's cosmic plan, at the beginning of all things, it was ordained that God was going to, Jesus was going to resurrect on a Sunday. Why Sunday? When God created the world, he did it in six days. In Sabbath, Saturday, was his day of rest. Sunday, you see, is the first day of creation. And in Jesus rising at Easter, we get the first day of new creation. God's restoration, his coming back to life on Sunday, is a statement that there is a new chapter in creation that has begun in this moment. And we even get this beautiful reversal of Eden in that place. Jesus' first interaction there is in a garden with Mary Magdalene. 
who is crying, alone, separate from God, and she meets someone who she thinks is a gardener. And she's right. It's the first gardener, the first creator who was there in the beginning. And Jesus introduces himself to her and to the rest of humanity for a second time. And there again, for the first time since Eden, we have God and man walking and talking in the garden. The story of Jesus is one where everything arrives back exactly at the new place that it was made for in the beginning. And Mary runs to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. The justice of Jesus is a new thing. It succeeds where our old and broken and imperfect justice has failed us over and over again. It introduces us to a world in which through the Holy Spirit we are invited, actually more than invited, we are sent, we are called, and we are equipped to be new creation people, justice people, hope-giving people in a world where injustice so often still seems to reign. We meet on Sundays because we are declaring our place and our role in this new creation. God's perfect justice has been delivered through Jesus Christ. And what is amazing is that he has sent us, the church, to continue his mission of restorative justice. Every Sunday that we meet, we are aligning ourselves once again with the one who has the authority to bring and extend justice to the world, who brings light and life to the darkness, who cares for the widow and the orphan, who gives sight to the blind, who helps the lame to walk, who welcomes the foreigner, who lives out radical service to those around him. And he has asked us to be his hands and his feet. And so, with radical resurrection hope, we walk forward. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every week is a reminder of this new world we find ourselves in. Amen? Amen. I'm going to close with a benediction, with a prayer. I'm going to head back to Romans 8, because Romans 8 is so good. It's a chapter that speaks about the injustice that we feel, the recognition that things are not as they should be. And Paul speaks about the groaning of creation and this sense in which things are not right. And he ends with this incredible, incredible set of promises, this incredible call to remember our connection to God and his love. And so as we go from here, as we head into this week coming up to Easter, uh, this is what I want you to leave uh, with these verses in your minds and your hearts as we go. So this is my prayer. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.